Hello, I'm Lisa Wehenya and welcome to Mind the Gap, a monthly podcast that looks at cultural pressures. Each episode, I am joined by a surprise guest and for this month, I am happy to have spoken with co-founder of UK Black Pride, Lady Phil. I know right now we can't really travel because of COVID restrictions, but consider this the quickest trip to Ghana you will ever experience. All aboard. What you're hearing right now is Ghana's national anthem. And in a moment, you'll be hearing from the proud Ghanaian woman herself, Lady Phil, about her culture, her work, and her passion for change. I love being Ghanaian. I love being African. I think it's a naming ceremony. And I think it's our names. So depending on what day of the week you were born, and when you're sort of christened but named you know that you you call up the ancestors and the spirits to guide and protect that child um and to take you through a wonderful journey and navigate certain things that will be challenging for you so as somebody that's called nanequa or my daughter is abana i was born on tuesday it means that you know when i was named i was named with that but i was also given my dad's grandmother as an ancestor who guides me through this world and I kid you not I know that everything I do I'm guided by my ancestors I love that you literally mesmerized me with how you was talking about the naming ceremony I was like wow why don't Kenyans do this (laughs) how was life like growing up with parents who left their life in Ghana to live here in the UK? Growing up for me was always one of, I saw how proud my parents were and are of our culture, our traditions, our heritage, you know, the old wives' tales that you can't do this, otherwise you won't get a husband. Not that I wanted a husband, but I, I think my parents tried ever so hard to mix and match between making sure that we spoke what was the Queen's English and at the same time we understood our language and we understood the food that we ate. Um, and it may have been hard for them because they came to this country to make a better life for their children, you know, so that we could access education in such an easy freeway to be academics, accountants and lawyers and so forth. But, you know, making sure they juggled our tradition, they put that first at all times. Probably why I'm always talking about being an African strong woman, because I love it. Amazing, amazing. And in what ways did they ensure that your culture was embedded in you? Oh, it was our food. It was the way we did our hair. So I don't know if you know, but there's, I can't even remember the name of it, but we used to do our hair with thread and you ended up kind of looking like Medusa, but you know, it was it was the hair with thread, the beads that went on on special occasions, the Ghana parties that we went to, the learning how to cook Ghanaian 
top jollof rice. Not going to have any arguments with Senegalese or Nigerian siblings, but Ghanaian jollof rice. It was certainly the music, so the high life, you know, and, and also hearing stories about Anansi the spider or um, Yawa Santue, who was the warrior woman that people don't often know about, but was the one that was the protector of the golden stool. So we heard lots about what Ghana looked like. And we also asked questions. Even with my own daughter, I make sure that she knows who we are, where we've come from. And, you know, she goes back to Ghana. And although she says, yeah, I'm half Jamaican and half Ghanaian, she's just still rocking her African vibes. I feel like we've got such a great insight already with your culture. Let's now get into your work. You co-founded UK Black Pride in 2005. What is the context behind that? So in 2004, I was running what was called Block, B-L-U-K, Black Lesbians in the UK, um, with another two women. And we were really doing a lot of online activities and we decided to take it offline to bring people into a space where we could see, touch, feel, and really get to grips with our shared commonalities. But we also acknowledge how much history there was before we were even born as UK Black Pride. There were people doing so much in our communities that maybe never got spoken about as much. Um, so it was also for us to acknowledge and remember and you know talk about those histories and her stories and their stories that came before us. But in 2005, when UK Black Pride was born, Oh, let me tell you, it was not easy because we live in a society whereby racism is very, very real and homophobia, biphobia and transphobia is rampant in societies and, and also different cultures as well. I'm not saying it's any more difficult to be um, black and queer or brown and queer, but there are challenges we have within our own homes where our parents and aunties, uncles are not accepting. They may do tolerance at some stage, but some of them are not accepting. So bringing UK Black Pride to the forefront and saying, we wanna have a pride which centers black and brown, queer voices, queer people, and do it in such an unapologetic way that means that we can really be ourselves in a space that feels, I would say, brave and safe for us to be in. It was met with so much resistance. We had mainstream LGBT um, activities or leaders who were like, who do we think we are? How dare we separate? Why don't you join, quote unquote, a normal pride? And then you had people saying, how dare there be a black pride in this country? That's racist. We don't have white pride. So there was amounts of educating, unlearning and learning for communities, but also still fighting to take up and occupy space. Was there any resistance from your parents? Oh, now that's, a, that's an even longer story. It's like, how long have we got? <laughs> now, I, I love my parents dearly. Um, my mum... 
you know, in terms of me coming out, I identify as a lesbian woman. I think it was difficult for her to comprehend. You know, when you think of the words lesbian and gay, bisexual, transgender, there is no language that naturally translate into tree or gar or fancy language. There isn't that language unless it's derogatory. And I guess now I'm at a particular age and I've been out for well over 18, 19 years. I understand the nuance of what colonialism did and it left homophobic and transphobic laws in our country. So it meant that our parents and our parents' parents would see LGBT people as a sin. They would see it as, how dare you? It's disgusting. But being queer is not un-African. I think what happened is those legacies and those laws left in place meant that we were not able to live freely and free from violence. So my mother would very much be of this opinion that it's not right because it's not accepting in the eyes of the Lord. And I guess religion and faith, belief play such a big factor. But, you know, my mum, my mum's like the hyacinth bouquet of Ghana. She's accepting and I think she finds it difficult sometimes, but I don't push it because I have unveiled my mask and I feel completely confident and comfortable in who I am. I'm a daddy's girl, so, you know, he'll love anything I do. And the fact that I'm not marrying a man and he's not going to inherit my riches if I pass away, that probably pleases him. <laughs> That's such a dad thing, isn't it? Like, especially when you're a daddy's girl. You touched a very good point there. Knowing the culture that you come from and knowing their resistance towards LGBTQ plus communities, what is it that made you feel like you needed to be the one to make that step forward, to be the one to create the change that you wanted to see? Mm, it's a brilliant question. I think, you know, like anything, we live in a world where... <sighs> Black beings and black bodies are tossed to one side or discarded, where women are seen as sexual objects, where young girls are preyed upon, where sexism is rife and where young people may not feel respected, where people with HIV status don't feel safe in saying that they have HIV or where disabled people don't have or differently abled people don't have the access to services they need. So when you don't see what you need or when there is so much resistance about who you are and your lived experience, I guess you have to create those spaces. You know, we talk about the table, making sure that, you know, there's a seat at the table. Sometimes there can be a seat at the table, but the table is still not diverse enough. So you might need to smash that all up and carve out your own table and bring the right people to it. So I like to think I do things collectively and with people because no woman, no man, no person is an island by themselves. So the building of movements takes a multitude of people. And I guess that's why I felt there's a need for us to have a black pride. And I now don't answer the question, why do we have black pride? I also say, 
well, what would it be like if we didn't have a Black Pride in this country? And of course, your work doesn't stop there. Kaleidoscope Trust is a non-profit organisation that you also work with. And the Trust works on fighting for the human rights of the LGBTQ community around the world. The fact that you actually go to these countries and work with people in positions of power to make the change is amazing. I know that in Kenya, where I'm from, there's a stigma to being gay. Someone can be stoned, just for being who they are. What impact has the Trust been able to make? Kaleidoscope Trust really works to uphold human rights, primarily and especially within the Commonwealth, which has 54 countries there. And I mean, some of those, out of those 50 odd countries, 34 of them have criminalizing laws that impact LGBT plus people. And then it goes from, you know, uh, serious to real severity of, you know, lashes, imprisonment, as you mentioned, stoning, and in some cases, the death penalty for being LGBT. This is 2021, and it still happens today. I think successes is the fact that Kaleidoscope Trust works in ways where we can move through the corridors of power and we can access high commissioners, high level officials and highlight to them what is happening in countries. And last year, in, at the end of May, we produced what was called LGBT plus people in a COVID era, which highlighted the inequalities and the ways in which LGBT plus people were impacted by COVID. We had things like Pakistan said that, you know, the access to HIV medication and nutritious meals were difficult in Botswana and Namibia. They talked about their activism being a standstill in Mauritius. You know, they talked about a bill that was at a standstill as well. People not being in safe houses, um, state violence. But what came out of that research meant that Kaleidoscope Trust was able to go to particular governments and ask for funding and unlock that funding in a time where everything's gone towards Brexit or COVID. And in unlocking that funding, it meant we were able to subgrant out to, I think it was well over 20 countries where they could use the money, not for us to dictate how they should use it, but for them to say, this is what the resources look like for them. This is how it's going to sustain their organizations so they can continue doing the great work that they do as human rights defenders. And this is how they are supporting individuals on the ground. And I think that that's the biggest success. Before you decided to take this step and be the change that you wanted to see, what was that time like? Trying to be accepted in your culture, knowing that your culture is not accepting of you. I think that trying to be accepted accepted was what was the hardest thing and I didn't realize that it was about me accepting myself first uh, and often we're so quick to want to please others and to make them feel comfortable in our space so I am unapologetic you are going to be comfortable in my space or there is no space for you um, and it took a couple of years for that to happen. And I had to also apply that to my mother, never disregarded her or disrespected her. I just knew that 
it felt too toxic and too heavy for me to want this, uh, I would say, validation from her that was not coming. So I had to do things for myself. I had to do things to feel good about myself, speak to others who had gone through a similar journey or had had success stories about how wonderful their parents have been, whether they're from the Caribbean, Asia, the Pacific, or, you know, indigenous, wherever they're from, and try and embody some of that and feel happy about it. And now that I am so comfortable in my skin and my surroundings, it's not just about culture because we create the culture, we are the culture, and then everything falls in place. And I'm not saying this to the listeners to make them feel like, oh, it's just sounding so easy. It really isn't. You know, there have been tears, there has been heartache and heartbreak through family and through also helping my daughter understand and come to terms with having a, a very out mother. But at the same time, you only have one life. And this is not about coming out because not everybody has to, but it's about comfortable and loving who you are and being good in your own skin. And once you have mastered that, it helps with anything around mental health, which may be poor or ill mental health. It helps with how you access particular services. It helps with how you... Um, greet and speak to another person about expectations and boundaries and what you're not willing to accept. I'm not saying it covers it all, but it goes a long way to being able to step in your truth and step in the lane that you think that you desire or that you deserve. My biggest lesson has been that the lesson continues every single day. The moment you've only had one lesson and you've said that's it, then you're not willing to unlearn, to learn, or to continue to educate yourself. You've dropped so many gems in this conversation. I hope it inspires others. It has definitely inspired me. <laughs> you've also got some exciting news to share. UK Black Pride this year is happening. Although it's not in person, it will be over a weekend, the 2nd to the 4th of July. It's a virtual event. Event, but there's going to be something for everybody. More details to follow and I will send them on to you. Thank you so much for your time and just having this conversation with me. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, I, this, is, this is great. And it's also wonderful to be in conversation with you. That's it for episode eight. That was Lady Phil, co-founder of UK Black Pride, speaking about her culture and her work in the LGBTQ plus community. Big news to announce, episode nine is the semi-finale. And you don't want to miss it. You can catch up on all previous episodes now. I mean, there's eight phenomenal guests to get to know on a deeper level. Find out about their journeys and what makes them who they are. As we approach the end of the season, there's going to be exciting news and content that I will share. But in order to be one of the first to hear it and see it, of course, you have to follow Mind the Gap on social media because that's where all the exclusive behind the scenes content is shared. On Twitter, you can find us by searching at GL underscore Mind the Gap. And on Instagram, it's at Generational Lens. I'm Lisa Wahinya and I'll see you again next month. Same time, same place. <laughs>